0: Well, good morning. It's good to be home. I mean, between coronavirus and my other preaching obligations, it's, it's really been a long time since I've been here. But you know what? I praise God that I am with you here this morning. It's always a blessing to be in the, the house of the Lord. It's a, it's a blessing to be able to come together, sing His praises, a blessing to be able to open the pages of Scripture and give glory to our King and Savior. Amen? And you know what? Today's a, a special day because it's the fifth Sunday in November. And you know what that means? It is the first Sunday that we are technically allowed in the church to preach a Christmas sermon. <laughs> I mean, that's been the tradition since the days of the apostles. Literally, we are told that immediately following the ascension of Christ that Peter turned to John and he laid down this commandment. He said, Thou shalt not celebrate Christmas in July, neither thou celebrate immediately following the Reformation Day. Yea, ye must wait to celebrate the Yule tidings until after the day of giving thanks and the feasting of turkey. Amen. I mean, I can't make this stuff up, folks. I just follow the rules as best as I can. All that I know is that I'm blessed to be able to introduce to you the reason for the season this morning. It has nothing to do with snow or elves or reindeer. Actually, we're, we're doing something quite interesting this year at South Union. For the first time, we're, as a body of believers, we're celebrating the season of Advent. And Advent, it, it has a, a rich tradition. It's been observed in the church in one way or another for over a thousand years. Of course, the way we celebrate it today is a little different than what they did in the early church. Um, You see, the word Advent has a, a Latin origin. It simply means the coming. So early on in the church, during the season of Advent, the church was actually celebrating the second coming of the Lord. The future time when he would return to the earth and set up his kingdom to rule and reign forever. But As time has gone on, Advent has become more closely associated with Christmas. And as such, our focus has changed somewhat. We now celebrate the first coming of our Lord, the first Advent. And just as you heard read earlier, we we are celebrating the child that was born to us, the son that was given, the prince of peace who will sit upon the throne of David. The prophet Isaiah tells us, about the incarnation of Christ, and he explains what he will do. His life is what gives us hope. It gives hope to all mankind. And as we witness all the craziness going on in our world today, we understand that hope is something that is desperately needed. It's something that we need to embrace whenever and wherever we find it. And so as I've considered these things this week, I've been thinking more and more about how the book of Isaiah is a book of hope. And I think it's something we should delve into a little bit deeper this morning. So it's with great joy that I I wish to you a happy Advent season, and a very Merry Christmas. But now, let's honor the Lord by going to His Word so that we can understand the great hope that has been promised there. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be looking at the 53rd chapter of Isaiah this morning. You know, what we've heard from Isaiah 9 already is just, it's just wonderful. It gives us a, a true introduction to the meaning of Advent. The child being born is the first coming of Jesus. Him sitting on the throne of David is his second coming, the beginning and the end, as it were. But what about that middle part? Because that's the important part. What happens between the birth and the second coming is the reason that we celebrate Advent and ultimately Christmas in the first place. The middle part explains the hope that is from God. So I want to start this morning by reading the first six verses in uh, Isaiah 53. And I want us to understand the hope that we have in this Messiah. So beginning in verse 1, it says, You know, the prophet Isaiah, he had an interesting ministry. He prophesied to Judah beginning at around 739 B.C. Now, at that point, the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed and and carried away by the Assyrians. It was total destruction. And so Isaiah was sent to the southern kingdom of Judah to warn them of a similar fate. His ministry was mainly done in and around Jerusalem. And he told the people there to repent but knowing that they would not. He also told them who would defeat them, how long they would be in captivity, and when they would be restored as a people. And if that's all he did, that would be enough. Isaiah was prophesying about events that wouldn't happen for another 200 years. But the flawless accuracy of his prophecies gives us great assurance that his ministry was empowered by God. After all, only God has perfect knowledge of future events. This book of prophecy is a a powerful proof of the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. When we read in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God, we can look back to Isaiah and see how that worked out in real time, how God revealed His plan to His people with absolute clarity. It speaks to the sovereignty of God how he works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. This single book testifies to the veracity of the other 65 books that we call Holy Scripture. It teaches us that God is in as much control now as he always has been throughout all of history. But Isaiah did more than just talk about the impending judgment and redemption of Judah. Judah. He prophesied about Israel failing as the chosen nation. In chapter 6, verse 10, he basically says that Israel is both deaf and blind. They were supposed to be a light in the world, teaching the truth of God to all the pagans around them, but they failed. They adopted the ways of the Gentiles. They went after false deities. They were a mess. So also in his book, Isaiah prophesied about a man who would come in the future, a man who would be called the servant of God. This man would redeem people who were lost in their sin. He would set things right. Where the nation of Israel had failed, he would succeed. And, of course, we know this person to be none other than the God-man himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Isaiah isn't the only book of of prophecy that, that told of this coming Messiah. In the book of Genesis, for instance, we learn that the Messiah would bruise the head of the serpent, that he would win the victory over Satan. Deuteronomy 18 says that he would be a great prophet. Moses told the people of Israel that God would raise up the Messiah and that they should listen to him. 2 Samuel 7 says that the Messiah would take the throne of David, that he would be a king who would rule. And according to Daniel 2.44, his throne and his rule would be both anointed and eternal. There are numerous references to the Messiah in the Old Testament. He would be the Savior of Israel, the the King who would conquer all of his enemies, the ruler who would reign forever. But in Isaiah 53, we find something a a little different. Here we find the Messiah, the, the servant of God, But he isn't conquering, he's suffering. But here's where we discover the true work of the Messiah. It's here that God reveals the plan of salvation that has existed since eternity past. So let's look at these verses uh, uh, in a little closer detail and and figure out the purpose for all this. Verse 2, it says that this servant grew up before God like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground, but he had no majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, that's a, an interesting description of Jesus, isn't it? Think about this. Where was Jesus born? In a manger, right? He was born in the dark, surrounded by a bunch of farm animals. There's no pomp and circumstance here. The, the kings of the world were not eagerly lined up waiting so they could bow down before him. No, not at all. Jesus, the King of kings, was born almost in secret, only surrounded by His parents, a, a few shepherds, and a, several farm animals. Certainly no one would think that a child born under those conditions would amount to anything. Further, do you remember what His, father, or his earthly father Joseph did for a living? He was a carpenter. Both he and Mary had the, the right bloodline so Jesus could legally inherit the throne of David. But they were poor, and he was a laborer. They didn't live as royals. That's the dry ground that Isaiah is talking about here. You see, if you, if you plant a, a tree and it grows with its root exposed, if that soil is dry and it's not fertile, then generally the, the plant doesn't prosper. It typically doesn't amount to anything. It just wilts and dies. I know I've had several trees in my yard that have done just that. But you see that what Isaiah is saying here is that no one would have expected Jesus to be the Messiah, given his humble origins. He certainly wasn't born into a privileged lifestyle, yet God prospered his faithful servant in just the way that he had intended We find in verse 3 that Messiah was despised and rejected by men. Now, we really don't think about Jesus in that way, do we? When we read the Gospels, we see thousands of people following him around. And it's easy for us to see that or think that everyone just loved him. They did nothing but cheer him on while he walked on this earth. But that isn't quite true. Sure, he had crowds that accompanied him everywhere, but why was that? because he was healing all the sick. He was casting out all the demons. On two separate occasions, he fed thousands of people with a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. The crowds didn't love him for who he is and what he taught. They loved him because he was meeting their immediate physical needs. And that's a different thing. In John 6, After Jesus described His supernatural origins, saying that He had been sent from the Father and that only those who believe in Him would inherit eternal life, what did most of His disciples do? It tells us in verse 66, it says that many of His disciples turned back and they no longer followed Him. The Bible says that His teaching was too hard for them. They didn't trust in Him. They didn't believe in Him, so they left Him. And the nation of Israel as a whole did the same thing. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, those three political groups hated one another. They didn't agree on anything. But yet they came together in their common hatred for Jesus. They all sought His death. And according to the plan of God, their desires were realized. Jesus would indeed die for the nation, just as was prophesied by the high priest in John 11.50. But Isaiah knew all of this. 700 years before Jesus was even born, he knew about it. He wrote about it. And the Jews did exactly what he said that they would do. Back to Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now listen to me here. Those are two of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Let me show you what's going on. Verse 6. It tells us that we've gone astray. We've all sinned before God. Ephesians 2 says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. That we are all by nature children of wrath. But what did Christ do for us? The Bible says that he was pierced for our transgressions. This speaks of the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. This is his substitutionary atonement. He took the punishment that we deserve, that we all deserve, on himself. We couldn't bear the wrath of God, so he bears it in our place. It gets more tense than that. It gets deeper. Because verse 5 says that he was crushed for our iniquities. And I want you to stop for a moment and really internalize this. Do you know the difference between a transgression and iniquity? Both refer to sin, that's true, but they have slightly different connotations. A transgression is, is when you don't quite follow the law of God, when you go too far or not quite far enough. In the New Testament, the word that most often gets translated as sin is the word harmartia. It simply means to miss the mark. That's what sin is, and that's what transgressions are, missing the mark. Sin happens when we do not perfectly follow the law of God, either by commission or by omission. We mess things up. We we fail. We fall short of the glory of God. Iniquity is more than that, though. Iniquity is that deep rooted desire to sin. It's premeditated sin. It's sin that is thought about and lusted over and desired. It's something that you know is wrong, something that you know violates the law of God, but you actively plan to do it anyway. You wantonly seek after the pleasures of the flesh instead of honoring your Father who is in heaven. It's defiant, open rebellion right in the face of God. And yet, despite this wicked state of iniquity that we find ourselves in, even after committing the types of sins that should rightly consign us all to the pit for the rest of eternity, He bears the wrath of God for us. The Bible says that with His wounds we are healed. And yes, there is an ultimate physical healing provided for us in the atonement, But the healing referred to here more directly speaks to the healing of our souls, the restoration of our relationship with the Father, the payment being made for sins. And Jesus does that. And we are told that he is crushed for it. Let's read the rest of Isaiah 53, and we'll see how this turns out. Starting here in verse 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush the Messiah. God fully intended Jesus to die. The death of Jesus was not a victory for Satan. It wasn't something that God had to make the best out of because the situation had somehow gotten out of control. No, this was the plan of God for all eternity. Before creation itself began, God meant for Jesus, His only begotten Son, to die on the cross as a substitute for us in our sin. And Jesus did so willingly. The Scripture says that He never opened His mouth. He never protested. He never cried out for the injustice that was being done to Him. He went willingly because He knew the plan of the Father. He knew what needed to be done. He was and is the perfect Lamb, never once sinning, never once disobeying God. In all things, He was and is righteous. And it's because of His obedience that this suffering servant was fully acceptable to God, His sacrifice was accepted on our behalf. According to, to verse 11, it's because of His sacrificial death that Jesus made many to be accounted as righteous. As John 6 said earlier, everyone who believes in Him inherits eternal life. Jesus makes intercession for all those who believe. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's that's the entirety of it right there. That's the very reason that Isaiah 53 is often called the fifth gospel. This Old Testament prophet told us exactly what would happen and why it would happen. And he did so hundreds of years before those events ever took place. Isaiah revealed to us the hope of the world let me ask you something. How certain do you think Isaiah was about the prophecy that he was giving? Did he think that he was simply telling us a a possible future? Or did he think he was telling us the actual future? Real quick, let me show you this. In verse 2, it says that the servant of God, quote, grew up. Verse 3 says that he was despised and rejected. Verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And verse 12 says that he bore the sins of many. Do you see a theme here? The way that Isaiah describes these events are as if they already took place in the past. It would be another 700 years before any of these events actually happened, but Isaiah refers to them as if they had already occurred. This is what's called the prophetic perfect tense. This is the prophet speaking of those events with such clarity that it's as if he were reading a history book. They were guaranteed to take place. And today we look back at at those events and we see that everything that the prophet Isaiah spoke about the first advent of Christ has been perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The prophet was exactly right in every detail. And also, here's something. Do you know what else is spoken of in the prophetic perfect tense? Isaiah 60, the future earthly reign of Christ. As sure as his birth was to Isaiah, so was his suffering, and so was his future eternal reign. Folks, that's our hope right there. Isaiah lays it all out for us. From Isaiah 7, where we see that there was a promise of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, calling his name Emmanuel, God is with us. To Isaiah 53, where we see the suffering servant giving his life to atone for sins. To Isaiah 60, where the king sits on his throne and rules forever. It's all there. It's all promised. We are assured of this great hope of salvation and eternal life. And as we begin to celebrate Advent, That's what you should be meditating on. That's what you should be praising God for every day. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. It's only through him that we are made righteous, saved from the wrath of God. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only in Jesus do we receive the promise of eternal life. Only He can make us righteous. This world may seem like a a dark and scary place to live in sometimes. Set your eyes on the horizon, church. We have hope, true, undying hope, because God has sent His Son to save us. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ, the servant of God, He is our hope. And that's why Jesus is the reason for the season. Merry Christmas.